Father, thank you so much for this time and your word. Please help us, God, to lean in and to see. Give us eyes to see, Lord. Lord, thank you for letting us sing those songs to you. And I pray that worship, worship of your name would just continue right now as we meditate on your word together. We need your help, Lord, and we praise you, God, that you're so willing to give it to us. You said, Lord, whatever we ask in your name, you would do it, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. So, Lord, please hear us this morning and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 21. Before we read it, let me say something about the setting here. Um, so the last few chapters, so we've been coming through Matthew, and the last few chapters has been Jesus and his disciples on this journey, and they're headed towards Jerusalem. So the last few chapters have been Jesus, his disciples, headed towards Jerusalem. He's got these crowds with him because there's these Passover crowds, right? They're all moving toward, these pilgrims moving towards Jerusalem. It almost seems like the crowd that starts with him just swells and gets larger and larger the closer he gets to Jerusalem. Uh, he's meeting more pilgrims coming in. But when they get to Jerusalem, I mean, you're talking about massive crowds of people in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. Um, some records show that, the, that Jerusalem had about 30 to 50,000 people there. But during this Passover uh, celebration, it would swell to like almost a quarter million people. So you're talking about just people, uh, um, you know, bulging out the city everywhere in Jerusalem. They would even for a short, for, temp for you know, temporarily, they would actually extend the borders of Jerusalem to outside the, the city walls for just, just during that time period. Um, so you've got massive crowds and Jesus, his disciples, the crowds are going with him. And, and of course, he's about to enter into this, this, um, this hectic environment. And that's kind of where we're at in this passage today. Verse 1 says, uh, Bethpage is the place where they're coming up to. The Mount of Olives. I know you've heard of that before, the Mount of Olives. Uh, there's another city called Bethany, which the other gospel accounts tell us Bethany is a village close by to. And, and th these are places that are sort of just outside the city walls. Maybe not just outside, but, but they're very, very close to Jerusalem. Like imagine being on the Mount of Olives and you can see the city of Jerusalem, and it's about a mile and a half, two miles, you know, that way. They're on that last little trek um, coming into the city here. <clears throat> so I want to read it, and then we're going to dig in. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. 
they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So plain sense here before... Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He takes a couple of his disciples. And he says, I want you two guys to go to this village right here. Maybe it's Bethany, maybe it's Bethphage, whichever. They're, they're going to go to this village. And, uh, and I want you to get a donkey and bring him back. Now, these, if you think about these massive crowds around Jesus are about to usher Jesus. This is what we're reading here. They're going to usher Jesus into uh, his city. And while they're doing that, they're going to be exalting, exalting him, lifting him up as the messianic king. Now, as I said before, these crowds had formed beforehand and just got bigger and bigger and, and, and bigger as you get closer to Jerusalem. And not only do you have crowds that are going with him and it's this massive group of people. But if you go read the account in John 12, it tells us that people in the city, they heard that Jesus was coming. In Jerusalem, in the, in the walls there, they heard he's coming, and they're looking out at what's going on, and they're seeing these crowds go ballistic for this, uh, this one coming in riding on a donkey, and they begin to come out with palm branches too. So people, you know, crowds going in, crowds coming out to, to meet him. If you go read the passage in John 12, it tells us that uh, so many of these people had heard what he did in Bethany, uh, not, too, not too long before this, where he... Where he raised Lazarus from the dead and so that's stirring up people man who is this one and and they're all coming out crowds in front of him behind him all around him the Pharisees in I think it's John 12 also they say man the whole world has gone after this one that's their phrase the whole that's what it looked like to them the whole world has gone after this man and so go get the donkeys they go get the donkeys bring them back they throw their cloaks on these donkeys, he sits on the colt, and he begins a slow procession. Uh, and I say slow because of what he's riding, and also because, again, it's not just—it's not like he just had a few feet to go. You're talking a mile and a half, two miles, you know. And he's got cloaks out in front of him. He's given the red carpet treatment, and they're cutting down uh, tree branches and throwing them down. And, and this, you know, this slow procession into Jerusalem would have looked amazing. Um, they're going absolutely ballistic. They're shouting, it says here. They're shouting. Verse 10 says, the whole city, so inside, so he's coming in and inside Jerusalem, it says the whole city was stirred up. That's literally uh, shaken. He shook the city. It's where we, that Greek word is where we get the word seismic from. So it's like this earthquake of worship is going down to where the people in the city are going what in the world is going on here it's, it's amazing amazing stuff and so these people um, from inside the city they ask what's probably the most important question you could ever ask and they say and they say who is this 
Who is this man? Most important question you could ever ask. Who is this one riding in on a donkey? And uh, the crowds who have been saying, Son of David. And, and we know, we've been covering that a lot in Matthew, haven't we? We know what that means. Son of David. This is the one from David's line. God promised David that one of his son would sit on a throne and be the king forever. That's the promise. There's the son of David. Messianic praises are going out of their mouth. And they say, who is this? And the ones that have been calling him son of David, they say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You can see that in verse 11. So this is Jesus's what people call the, his triumphal entry into the city. So I hope you have a good picture here of what's going on. I mean, um, worship is exploding over this place and it's messing up the whole city during this Passover celebration. Now, the most obvious thing about this passage is that Jesus is king. As he's, riding on, as he's getting that donkey and he's riding on that donkey into the city, he says that the prophecy that was fulfilled in that event, you look at it here in verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. So the most obvious thing about this passage is Jesus is king. But to dig deeper, you can dig into this passage and you can, you can um, you know, answer a really important question. What kind of king is Jesus? Right, And this passage reveals things about what kind of king uh, uh, Jesus actually is. Okay? And that's what I want us to spend time doing. Just seven uh, characteristics of King Jesus that we see out of this passage. And so this is what I mean. Like just, we're going to read some things and, and highlight some things. Enjoy who Christ is right now. Like Let's worship Jesus for who he is and who he's revealed to be. In this passage. Number one. Jesus is revealed here to be what kind of king? Number one. He's revealed to be the divine king. The divine king. There's none like Jesus. Now especially in this aspect of Jesus. Okay, There's none like Jesus especially in this. Jesus is truly God. Divine. And he's truly man he's fully god he's fully man he's not half god half man he didn't lose his godness and become man and then gain his godness back no no at the incarnation when he takes on flesh he's truly god and truly man and throughout the gospels we see his humanity being put on display as he's sleeping as he's eating like a human as he has to actually grow in stature and and even grow in wisdom as a child Amazing displays of his humanity. And in the same breath, we see his divinity being put on display, right? Like, like he's asleep on the boat, humanity. He wakes up, tells the storm, the megastorm, to be quiet, and it stops. Divinity, right? Divine. Um, well, what we have in this passage is a display of the divine nature of Jesus. And you see it in the first three verses. Did you notice that in the first three verses? What does he tell his disciples to do? And just notice the details. I want you to go, this is verse 2, go into the village in front of you and listen to the details. Immediately, uh, you'll find a, a donkey tied and a colt with her, two of them there. Untie them, bring them to me, more details. 
if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. Okay, then what will happen, Jesus? And then he'll send them, he'll send them at once. And so the question that comes to mind when you read something like that is, how does he know that? How does he know these details? And by the way, it happens exactly as he says. But how does Jesus know these details right here? Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10 says, There's none like God who declares the end from the beginning. That's why. There's none like Jesus who can declare the end from the beginning. He's man, but he is God. He is the divine King, And what we see here is the omniscient one, Jesus, the omniscient one, which is amazing because in his humanity, he had to learn stuff. He had to he had to he had to grow in wisdom, it says in the Bible. He grew in wisdom. That doesn't sound like omniscient. And yet here you see his divine nature pouring out. He knows all things. Exactly what you're running to when you come into the city. Untie those two donkeys. Somebody's going to say this to you. Say this back and they're going to say this. This is glorious. Jesus is the divine king. Number two. We see here that Jesus is the prophesied king. He's the prophesied king. Verse four. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he points you back to Zechariah to a prophecy. He says all this stuff is happening as a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is the prophecy fulfiller. The, uh, Matthew in his gospel has been trying to show us that again and again and again. Quoting Old Testament prophecy, Jesus fulfilled it. Quote another one, Jesus fulfilled it. He's the prophecy fulfiller. Now, the fulfillment of prophecy is meant to affect your faith and your confidence in Christ. It's supposed to affect, as you see prophecy fulfilled, it's supposed to affect your faith in Christ. And here's why I say that. John 13, verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. I'm telling you this now, before it happens. Why? So that when it happens, you might believe. It should affect your faith. You need to have confidence that I'm He. The fulfillment of prophecy should affect your faith. And we see this all over Jesus' life. Jesus is born of a virgin, as was prophesied in Isaiah 7. Uh, Jesus is from the line of David, as was prophesied. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, as was prophesied in Micah chapter 5. Uh, children would be killed in Bethlehem because they're trying to murder Jesus, as was prophesied. Jesus' family fled to Egypt so that he would be called the son that was called out of Egypt, as was prophesied. And all these are just the ones that Matthew was highlighting in the first two chapters of this gospel. It's just the tip of the iceberg. And what we see here is Jesus comes riding into his city as a king on a donkey, as was prophesied by Zechariah. Now, why did he do that? Why, why did these scriptures, why are they being fulfilled in front of us? Well, this is the reason. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place. So then when it does take place, you might believe that I am He. So brothers and sisters, faith in Christ. Trust, trust your Savior. He's the prophecy fulfiller.
Now what I want us to do is turn back to that prophecy that he has fulfilled here. Go to Zechariah. In your Bible, Zechariah uh, chapter 9. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 9. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and we'll read 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Third description of Jesus as king is Jesus is the righteous savior king. He's the righteous savior king. Did you see that in verse 9? Verse 9 says, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. He's the righteous savior king. He's righteous and having salvation. Now this description of righteous here is in regards to his kingly rule. In other words, it's not just that he's sinless. It's not just that he's always right. But, but in light of his kingship, that he is king, that he's ruler, he's a righteous ruler. He's like Psalm 711. God is a just judge. A God who's angry with the wicked every day. He's a just ruler. He's a righteous king. A righteous ruler. He will administer justice. He will execute justice. That's the idea from this description here. All sin, all evil, all crimes will be dealt with justly. No sin will be swept under the rug. And no guilty will go unpunished. He's just. He's a righteous king. Now, righteous Savior king. Savior here is from this phrase. Having salvation. Salvation. He will deliver. He will rescue. In our passage in Matthew 21, when they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna means save Lord. So it's worshiping Him as the Savior. So He's, he's the righteous one who... Has salvation. Now, here's, here's how many people in the crowds that day, in Matthew 21, here's how many people in the crowds that day would have expected this to shake out. That the king will display his righteousness, his justice, towards that Roman government that's oppressing us. And he'll express his salvation towards us, the Jews, the Israel. That's how many in the crowds that day would have thought of it. Justice to the Romans and salvation to Israel, the nation of Israel, his people. That's the way they would have thought about what Jesus was coming to do. But the reality is, is the king's justice here demands punishment for all evildoers. 
When you say righteous judge, just judge, righteous king, that demands punishment for all evildoers, not just the Romans. His righteousness or his justice is a threat, not just to the Romans, but his justice is a threat to all sinners. Therefore, to all humanity, the justice of God stands there as a standard that if you come before his judgment seat, As a sinner, you will be tormented forever in hell because God is a just judge, and that's what we deserve. That's fair. So here's the big question. It's a big question from this description. How can he bring salvation? So he's the one righteous and bringing salvation. How can he bring salvation to sinners and yet remain just? And righteous. How can he be just and righteous but not pour out his wrath on sinners like us? That's the question from this text. Jesus is the Savior. Matthew 1.21 says, call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So he is Savior, but how will he save people that deserve just wrath and yet maintain his characteristic of righteousness? And justice, the next point will help us understand that. The next point will give us an answer. Number four, he's the humble king. Look at it again in verse nine. He's the humble king. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble. See it? Humble. He's the humble king. Now, we've already seen this in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 11, he said, take my yoke on you because I'm lowly. He called himself lowly. In uh, Matthew 20, where we just were recently, uh, verse 28, he says he didn't come to be served but to serve. He came as a servant. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we already understand Jesus as the lowly one, as the humble savior, as the humble king. And this needs to be really clear to us. Everything about Jesus' life and his death is a humbling for our salvation. Everything about it is a humbling for our salvation. Not just his death, but everything in his life. Jesus humbled himself. This is the humiliation of Christ. Think about that. The Son of God becomes flesh. Just glory in that for just a minute. That God the Son, the creator of all things, that sustains all of life, takes on human flesh. He He becomes a human. Charles Wesley said it like this. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. He was subjected to the helplessness of infancy. And that's humility. He's subjected to the growing and the learning of childhood. The omniscient one learns something. That's humility. That's a humble king. He's subjected to the weaknesses of a human body. You think about that. He sustains all of life. And yet there he is needing food and water to survive. All of this is humility. He subjected himself to ridicule and mocking from people that literally could not breathe one breath if God didn't sustain them. If Christ, if the Son of God didn't sustain them, they couldn't even utter those mockings towards Christ. And then especially, 
humble king subjected to death, the humiliating death of a cross like no other death. He dies on the cross in the sin. The one who has tasted no sin ever. The sin is laid upon him at the cross. He tastes sin for us all. Forsaken by the Father. Wrath of God poured out on him. He doesn't deserve the punishment. You do, I do. But he takes it in our place. He goes to the cross. This is humility. He's a humble king. And through this humiliation at the cross... He can be the Savior and the Righteous One. He can save sinners through the cross because He dies for our sin. He takes our punishment. Therefore, sinners like us can be saved. Therefore, He's having salvation. But because He took the punishment, He took the wrath, no sin went unpunished. No sin was swept under the rug. But He took the full brunt of God's wrath for it all. Therefore, He remains just and righteous. So he's righteous and having salvation. And how can he be both? Because he's the humble king that died for sinners. Number five. Still here in Zechariah. He's the all nations king. And just glory, you know, glory in this. Worship in this for a moment. He's the, he's the all nations king. Look at it in verse 10 at the very end. It says, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So where will he be king? From sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. He's going to be king of the ends of the earth. He's a global king, according to this prophecy. So he's he's coming into Jerusalem as the king, but that's never been the ultimate goal. The Messiah was prophesied to come from the Jews, but it's never only been about the Jewish people. This king was meant to rule the entire world from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. The Old Testament has told us that from Abraham to Malachi. To Abraham, he said, he's going to bless all the nations. Malachi, I'm a great king, says the Lord. I will be exalted among the nations. All over the Old Testament, it's been revealed again and again that this is an all-nations king that's coming. Well, here he is, entering into his city on a donkey. He's the global king in every, Scripture says, every knee will bow from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He's the all-nations king. Now, if that's true, if Jesus is going to rule the whole world, shouldn't he be riding into Jerusalem on a war horse? Shouldn't he have chariots behind him full of weapons so that he can give weapons to his armies and and then in that moment free Israel from Rome? And then go one nation after another until he rules the whole thing. He's on a donkey. Shouldn't he be on a war horse? He's got nothing. Shouldn't he have weapons? And that's a thought that should cross your mind. That's what many people in the crowds thought was coming. This is what they expected of the Messiah. That the Messiah would come and free us from from bondage to Rome with violence and power. He's the king that's going to deliver Israel. But if, I know you know this. Jesus has been 
flipping their minds upside down, literally this whole gospel. Hey, I know you think of like this about uh, uh, lead, you know, leadership. Here's how you ought to think. I know you think about this about divorce. Here's how you ought to think. He's just been flipping their minds upside down about almost everything, almost every topic. And that's the exact same thing that we see here. Jesus makes it really clear in this passage in Matthew 21 and Zechariah 9 that his, his plan for world domination, and he will dominate the world, but his plan for world domination is not like what they expect. The prophet Isaiah said his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So how's he going to do it? If he's the old nation's king and he has no war horse, and he has no chariots and he has no weapons. And how's he going to do it? And that takes us to the, the sixth description of Jesus here. Number six. Jesus is the peaceful king. Jesus is the peaceful king. Okay. Now, this thing of riding in. I want you to understand this. This thing of riding in on a donkey into his city. In Matthew 21 verse 1 through 11. That's a communication of peace, okay? Uh, peace is being communicated as he's coming in on that donkey. He is the king of peace. He is the prince of peace. And we see that really clearly where we're at here in Zechariah chapter 9. Because look at it. Again, verse 9. Your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then look, this is a communication of peace. Look at what it says next. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, no chariots, and the war horse from Jerusalem, no war horse, and the battle bow shall be cut off, no weapons, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. He shall speak peace to the nations. So this is meant to communicate as he's riding on this donkey it's, to, it's meant to communicate he's the prince of peace he's this peaceful king now again what did they expect they expected a messiah that would bring war in order to get peace for israel war first and then and then peace but what they got was jesus who conquers first with peace in his first coming and then war will come later in his second coming He's flipping everything upside down. He didn't come this first time to bring violence to others. He comes this first time so that violence can be poured out on himself. And through that, he's going to conquer the whole world. It's a really important question. That you'll get that, this will be really clear to you if you get this question right. Very important question. Who are the enemies of the Messiah King? Who are the enemies of the Messiah King. Now many in the crowds thought it was the Romans. There are enemies. They subdued Israel. That must be his, his, his enemies, right? But what we know from the scripture is that the enemies of the Messiah is all those who have sinned. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 calls all of us, all of us, that at one time we were enemies of God, we're enemies of this Christ. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, therefore all of humanity has sinned against God, are enemies of God. Not just the Romans, but all who have sinned. And so again, many people in the crowds, 
In Matthew 21, they're expecting uh, for this king to make war on Rome in order to bring peace to Israel and then to begin to conquer one nation at a time, one nation at a time until he rules it all. But what we see here is Jesus flipping it upside down. He's going he's gonna to bring peace first to all his enemies and then war will come later. Now, here's what I mean by that. Just to describe that a little bit. Uh, Jesus' Jesus's plan, his plan to conquer the world, it begins first by dying for his enemies. He's going to go to the cross and take enemies like us. He's going to take their, their sin onto himself and die for his enemies, right? And then after he dies for his enemies and makes a way for them to have peace, he's, he's going to begin to take over the world. One nation at a time through the gospel of Jesus Christ as he changes the hearts of his, of his enemies. Now that's beautiful. That, that's like us. Like what, what are we doing here this morning? We're a bunch of people that were enemies of God. Enemies of this Christ. Rebellious, sinful enemies. And now look at us sitting here singing songs about Jesus. Paying attention to reading about Jesus' words because Jesus is going to take his enemies and make them loyal servants through the gospel. And he's going to do it in nation after nation after nation. He takes over with peace first and then war will come later. That war that's going to come later is going to be a very short and one-sided war. Jesus is going to return with 10,000 angels to escort his people who used to be his enemies into glory and then those who have rejected his mercy, those who have rejected his grace, will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So peace first, war later. Right now, we live in this time where there's gospel peace offered. It's offered. So now is the time of salvation. So if you're here today and you have not come to Jesus Christ, put your hope in him, bow to the king of glory, now's the time before it's too late. Psalm 2 warns us that the offer of peace is going to one day expire. He warns us that if we don't respond now, listen to this from Psalm 2, it's the very last verse, says, kiss the son. That's bow down to the king. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Praise God, not yet. Not yet. Last, last phrase, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Right now, he's the king of peace. He's the one riding in on the donkey. Come to him now and make peace with God. That's the plea. Don't wait till it's too late. Because the time's coming where he comes in on a war horse. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you don't know Christ, now's the time. He's, he's rode in on the donkey as an offer of peace to you. Don't wait until he comes in on the white horse. Praise God that he's a king of peace. He's a peaceful king who humbled himself and died for sinners. Now, number seven, lastly. And just enjoy this about Christ. He's the bold prophet king. He's the bold prophet king. Now, back in Matthew 21... Remember those last two verses, verse, verse 10 and verse 11. Let me read that again. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, was stirred up saying, who is this? So man, they're shaken. Who is this man? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the prophet. That's where I'm getting that from. He's the bold prophet king. He's the prophet. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. People are coming in in multitudes, in droves. They're celebrating the Passover. And the Passover is a vivid reminder of that time. Remember? When Israel, you imagine being there that day. Of, of, it's a vivid reminder of that time when, when Israel was, was delivered from bondage in Egypt. By signs of power and by the blood of a lamb. And there they are and they're, they're celebrating Passover. And they got this reminder in front of them of we used to be enslaved to Egypt. But we were brought out of that enslavement. We were brought out of that, that bondage by power and by the blood of the lamb. You imagine them remembering these things. And if you remember, they, they would remember Moses. Moses was their prophet. Moses was their prophet through whom God delivered them. From that nation, Egypt. Now here's the thing. I want to commend this verse to you. Go back and read it later. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 through 19. Grab that verse. Think about it. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And, and God tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to raise up another prophet like you. And when he says like you, you read the passage and you realize he means like Moses in the sense that Moses was that mediator between the people of Israel and God. I'm going to raise up another prophet like you, a mediator between myself and my people. I'm going to raise up another prophet. And Jesus is that prophet. So here comes Jesus entering Jerusalem like a king. The city's shaking. Who is this? They say, this is the prophet. This is the prophet. Now think about, think about the way this would have landed on many people. S same thing here. Many people would have thought, okay, Moses delivered, it, uh, delivered us out of Egypt. Here's that other prophet that's going to deliver us out of what? Out of Rome. They, equate, they would equate Egypt with Rome because they thought that was their greatest problem and their greatest enemy. They would have been disappointed, Right? When Jesus dies and all his followers abandon him, they would have been disappointed in that moment. 
This is not the prophet as we thought. This is not the son of David as we imagined. They wouldn't have realized that he was actually there to deliver them from something far greater than Rome. He was there to deliver them from their own sin, from death, from hell, from judgment, that which really held them in bondage more than any nation could. He was there to deliver them from these things. He's the prophet like Moses, the mediator to deliver his people from a deeper enslavement, from dominion under sin and death. And how would he do it? How would Jesus do it? He would do it by power, acts of power, and by the blood of the lamb, which would be his own blood. Now, so he's the prophet of God. He's the prophet of God. And I said a bold prophet. And here's, here's what I mean by that. To be a prophet of God means you're a mouthpiece for God. Okay, you're a mouthpiece for God. And this is the prophet of God. Now, a true prophet doesn't tickle ears. A true prophet doesn't care what other people think. He's not just saying the things that people like. And so if you're a prophet in a dark and evil world like Jesus was, then man, you're going to face some backlash. You're going to face heavy pushback. And you're going to need to be very bold. And so what we see here is the, crowd, the crowds are worshiping him now, but Jesus knows that what he's headed into is hostile territory. He knows when he gets into Jerusalem, he's headed into a hostile environment. The focus of the next few chapters, as we keep going forward, are going to be Jesus sparring with the Jewish authorities. And he's just going to spar with them and spar with them until, boom, they kill him like he's a criminal. And what we see in, in this entrance into Jerusalem is he's going to dive headfirst right into it. Boldness. He's going to go in there intending to teach things and preach things and act in such a, such a way that people are going to want to murder him. Boldness. He's going to move forward. Set his face like Flint and just move forward. One, uh, one commentary I was reading said that, and I thought this was, this was a good thought, that Jesus was deliberately dramatic in the way he entered into this city. And that's true, right? Like, he could have just quietly slipped in, avoid all the conflict, quietly slip in, you know, just like anybody else. He could have done that. But instead, he, he's purposeful here. And he, he makes a public spectacle out of his entrance into Jerusalem. He didn't get on the donkey because he was tired. He travels all those miles from, way, you know, way, way up north. He travels all those miles to Jerusalem. And he's not just tired in the last couple miles. No, he's making a public spectacle here. He's deliberately dramatic. He's showing something. He's stirring up a fuss. He's, in fact, he's stirring up a whole city. One, one comment, the same commentator, he, uh, he called what Jesus do, doing here as throwing down the gauntlet. You know, you got medieval knights, and if they're going to, the way they would offer a challenge or to a feud or to a duel was to take the gauntlet and throw it down. So he's offering a challenge. He's picking a fight here. He's entering in deliberately into his city, throwing down the gauntlet, ready to do battle, ready to go. And then what do we have? The rest of these chapters, you know, uh, arguments and sparring with these religious authorities that are going to eventually murder him. To do this, this took boldness. To step into Jerusalem like this took boldness. I think it's beautiful, and I wanted to mix it with this. One other little thing, and then we'll... Start to close it out. I want to read this to you from Luke 19. Now this is, 
This is the other account, uh, another account of Jesus' triumphal entry. So you think about Jesus, he's coming in, he's that prophet that was prophesied about that would come, the prophet like Moses, he's about to go in bold. What's he going to do? First thing he does when he gets into the city is go into the temple, start turning over tables, rebuking religious authorities. Man, he's going in with boldness, but what kind of boldness is it? It's not a cold boldness. It's what you might call a weeping boldness. And this little picture of Christ entering in was a beautiful thing to me, and I want to offer it to you for consideration. In Luke 19, verse 41, you imagine him there. Crowds busting loose, going crazy over this one. Crowds everywhere, before, behind, around, coming out of the city. And they're looking at this one on this makeshift red carpet, coming in on a donkey. And what does his face look like? What's on his face? And look at what it says in Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Man, that's a beautiful boldness of, of rivers of water running down his face because men do not keep your law. As it says in Psalm 119, and he's weeping over these people saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. All oh, that you could get what I was doing right now. It's a beautiful thing. What a king. So in summary, Jesus is king. What kind of king is he? He's a divine king, prophesied king, a righteous savior king, a humble king, the all nations king, the peaceful king, and he's a bold prophet king. Grace Community Church, I uh, just close by saying this. Worship and obey your king. And I think that's, I want that to be full on our hearts. Let, let that be the exhortation today. Do you worship this king? Do you give to him the glory due his name? Do you have a heart to obey? Do you want to read his word and do whatever this king says? Because he's glorious. Look at him. Would you spend all that time looking at Jesus? Y'all worship him. Obey him. When's the last time you worship Jesus like we read right here in verse 9? Look, look, at, look, at, look at it again, Matthew 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting. When's the last time you worshipped him like this? They were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When do you worship him like that? Make that a regular rhythm of your life to worship him like that. Don't just read your Bible. Read your Bible as an avenue to worship the king of glory. Don't just pray. Worship him in prayer. Don't just go to church, show up to worship him corporately together. Lift up our voices and get a little taste of, the, of this entrance into Jerusalem and, and, and even more than that of what it's going to be like in heaven to worship the king of glory. Worship him, worship him, worship him. That's the exhortation. And obey him. Let all your worship be rooted in obedience. Let verse 6 be a good example for us. Look at this in verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. That's beautiful. Every detail. Just, okay, Lord, that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> Do you think this was easy? You think that was easy obedience? Hey, I want you to go into this town and essentially steal a donkey. 
That's what it looks like. And uh, when the owner comes out, you know, maybe he's mad. And he says, it, he, says, he says, what are you doing untying that? I just want you to say, the Lord has need of it. And it'll all be fine. Trust me. This is not easy. And he tells them to do this. And I love this. The disciples went. It took faith. It took trust in their Savior. It took trust in the divine one. The humble one. The righteous one. It took trust in him. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. It's my exhortation this morning. Let's leave it with that. Grace Community Church, worship and obey Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with worship. Lord, we've asked you, we've asked you in song, Lord, we've asked you in prayer. And we've asked you over and over again, week after week, Lord, help us see more of the glory of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that the, the glory you've helped us see this morning, help us to turn it up to you now in worship, in praise. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to turn it back to you in obedience. God, make us obedient disciples. We love you and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.